Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dell. Today's part four of the Celt miniseries, and I think I'll wrap it up today. So we'll we'll end the Celts, and this brings us firmly into the time of the Romans. And when I get back to the chronological order, we'll talk about the Romans and Germanic tribes. But the Romans knew about the Celts for a while. Celts inhabited northern Italy, after all, since at least the 4th century BC. But as I mentioned before, the inscriptions date all the way back to the 6th century BC. And specifically, we're talking about Cisalpine Gaul. So we have like the Roman Republic in the 220s BC. And you can sort of view these Celts, like the Golaseca culture specifically, as a trade partner between Austrian Hallstatters and the Etruscans. We have salt heading south and Mediterranean goods heading north. In fact, it was these Celts who swarmed down in 391 BC and they founded cities like Milan. Later, the Roman army was routed at the Battle of Alia and Rome was sacked in 390 BC by the Senones. At the Battle of Telamon in 225 BC, a large Celtic army was trapped between two Roman forces and crushed. We have the defeat of the combined Samnite, Celtic, and Etruscan alliance by the Romans in the Third Samnite War, and this kind of marked the beginning of the end for the Celtic domination in mainland Europe. But it was not until 192 BC that the Roman armies conquered the last remaining independent Celtic kingdoms in Italy. But really, check out Mike Duncan's The History of Rome for this one. Mike Duncan is a legend among podcasters. He's from Oregon, of course, like all the greats, and no and in no way will I rehash some of his stuff unless I have to. Um, but there's obviously a large overlap here today, what I'll talk about and, and his show. Um, and then also with the History of France and English podcast. So, um, but I, you know, I kind of want to summarize it and because and, this, this will lead into Romans and the Germanic tribes. So then we have Gallia Narbonensis. That's kind of the, pro the province of Gallia Transalpine or Transalpine Gaul. And this was later renamed Gallia Narbonensis. And, that, and it was named after its newly established capital of Narbo Martius, which is Narbonne. And this was, this was basically a Roman colony founded on the coast in 118 BC. And the Romans had called it Provincia Nostra, our province, or even simply Provincia, the province. And this is the term that has basically survived in modern French, name of the eastern part of the area, Provence, which is, you know, now a, a region of France. So this brings us into the Gauls. The Gauls in general are just super interesting. Uh, they, they, they were invading and raiding as far away as Greece, Anatolia, sacking Rome, and even raiding all the way down into Sicily. But I'm going to go ahead and assume that that's covered in the History of France pod podcast, so I'm just going to skim over it. The Boai were a Celtic tribe that I'll do a separate episode on, and they, they had an interesting story because they sided with the Carthaginians in the Second Punic War. Um, the Boai gave us terms like Bohemia and possibly Bavaria, and since I've spent 20 years in those regions combined, they'll definitely get their own show. Anyways, the Gauls got around, they fought with Hannibal, later against Julius Caesar. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth an episode here. Gradually, Roman control extended, and the Roman province of Gallia Transalpina developed along the Mediterranean coast. And the Romans knew the remainder of Gaul as Gallia Comata, or kind of translates to hairy Gaul. And now in the wars with Julius Caesars, we start encountering honest-to-God Germanic peoples. I'll circle back around and give the Germanic king Ariovistus his own episode when I, discuss, when I discuss the Germans and the Gallic Wars later. 
Now in 58 BC, the Helvetii, or Helvetii, planned to migrate westward, but Julius Caesar forced them back. He then became involved in fighting the various tribes of Gaul, and by 55 BC had overrun most of Gaul. That's all I'm going to say about that for now, as the Helvetii will get their own episode. In fact, probably part of a Swiss miniseries. I don't have all the details of that figured out yet. But that brings us to 52 BC, where we get into Vercingetorix, um, who led a revolt against the Roman occupation, but was defeated at the Siege of Alesia and surrendered. Um, this is all handled in the History of France, an English podcast, and in the uh, History of Rome podcast, so I don't want to reinvent the wheel here. This is too interesting to ignore altogether, either, so here is a brief summary. Vercingetorix came to power in 52 BC. Here's the two-minute version of his history. His father was put to death for trying to rule all of Gaul, but then Vercingetorix basically did just that by uniting most of the tribes. He raised an army and was pro proclaimed king of Jergovia. He immediately established an alliance with other Gaelic tribes, took command and combined all forces, and led them in Gaul's most significant revolt against Roman power. That's why he's so famous. That's why he's been covered uh, in various podcasts. He won the Battle of Jergovia, in which 46 centurions and 700 legionaries died, and more than 6,000 people were injured, whereupon Caesar's Roman legions withdrew. You can tell why that's kind of a, a famous story. He had modernized that, the tactics of the army to specifically defeat the Romans. This is actually quite impressive, since a lot of his own nobility thought that fighting the Romans was not worth the risk. So Vercingetorix had to raise an army of the poor. He also used a scorched earth policy to keep the Romans from living off the land. The Battle of Elysia had been mentioned in several other podcasts again, but really, it just shows Caesar at his finest, so I am going to go over that anyways. I really just love this story. So, the Battle of Elysia, we're talking September of 52 BC, Caesar built a fortification around the city to besiege it. However, Caesar's army was surrounded by the rest of Gaul, and Vercingetorix had summoned his Gallic allies to attack the besieging Romans. So Caesar built another outer fortification against the expected relief armies, resulting in a basically donut-shaped fortification, right? So there's Elysia in the middle, the Romans around that, and then Caesar built another fortification outside his forces with more Gauls coming in from the outside. So you have Gauls, Romans, Gauls. So a Roman-shaped donut, okay? Now, the relief came in insufficient numbers. The, ranges, the estimates range from 80,000 to 250,000 soldiers. Vercingetorix, the tactical leader, was cut, off from, was cut off from them on the inside, and without his guidance, the attacks were initially unsuccessful. However, the attacks did reveal a weak point in the fortifications, and the combined forces on the inside and outside almost made a breakthrough. Only when Caesar personally led the last reserves into battle did he finally manage to prevail. This was a de decisive battle in the creation of the Roman Empire. So basically, this is the battle that kind of gave Julius Caesar his reputation, let's say. Um, but according to Plutarch, Vercingetorix surrendered in dramatic fashion. This is a very famous part of the story. Riding his beautifully adorned horse out of Elysia and around Caesar's camp before dismounting in front of Caesar, stripping himself of his armor and sitting down at his opponent's feet, where he remained motionless until he was taken away. Caesar provided a first-hand contradiction of this account, describing Vercingetorix's surrender much more modestly. He was imprisoned in the Tullianum in Rome for five years before being publicly displayed in Caesar's triumph in 46 BC. He was executed after the triumph, probably by strangulation in his prison, as ancient custom would have it. Vercingetorix is primarily known through Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War. So following the Gallic Wars of 58 to 51 BC, Caesar's Celtica formed the main part of Roman Gaul, becoming the province of Gallia Lugdunensis. The territory of the Celtic tribes was bounded on the south by the Garonne, and on the north by the Seine and Marne. The Romans attached large swaths of this region to neighboring provinces Belgica, Aquitania, particularly later under 
Augustus. Now, place and personal name analysis and also inscriptions suggest that the Gallic Celtic language was spoken over most of what is now France. But there is a reason I'm talking about this in the History of Germany podcast. To the Romans, they simplified their geography by saying that Gauls slash Celts were on the west side of the Rhine and the Germanic peoples on the eastern side. But that's a huge oversimplification. We do see Germanic allies of the Celts on the western side and Celts on the eastern side, especially as you move south. So to, con to get a complete history of Germany, we can't just start with the Germanic Wars, which is why I did this whole messy miniseries. Okay, but let's move on to Iberia. The Iberian Peninsula is pretty interesting regarding Celtic history, but now we're really straying from German history. So I'll be brief. Before the 19th century, it was assumed that, although there were some Celtic regions in the Iberian Peninsula, they were mostly to the west and, and also central mountains. But since then, though, Almost all of the peninsula is thought to have had Celtic tribes at one point or another, and in fact maybe had a higher settlement density than the proper Hallstatt and Laten regions. In fact, Tartesian inscriptions of the 8th century BC might be classified as Celtic. This is significant because this would mean that Tartesian is the earliest attested trace of Celtic by a margin of more than a century. So if you're interested in Celtic origin theories, keep your eyes out for new academic literature. The old Hallstatt theory might be thrown out altogether, and the Iberians may, in fact, be the oldest proto-Celts. That's just one example of how little is actually known. And the Celts really kind of spread out. So the Celts also expanded down the Danube River and its tributaries. One of the most influential tribes, the Skordiski, or Skordishi, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, had established their capital at Singidunum in 3rd century BC, which is present-day Belgrade in Serbia. The concentration of hill forts and cemeteries shows a density of population in the Tisha Valley in modern-day Vojvodina, Serbia, Hungary, and into Ukraine. Expansion into Romania was, however, blocked by the Dacians. Further south, Celts settled in Thrace, also Bulgaria, which they ruled for over a century, and Anatolia, where they settled as the Galatians, a biblical fame which I mentioned last episode. Despite their geographical isolation from the rest of the Celtic world, the Galatians maintained their Celtic language for at least 700 years. St. Jerome, who visited Ankara, modern-day Ankara, in 373 AD likened their language to that of, of the Treveri of northern Gaul. For Venceslav Kruta, Galatia in central Turkey was an area of dense Celtic settlement. There are records of Celtic mercenaries in Egypt serving the Ptolemies. Thousands were employed in 283 to 246 BC, and they were, and they were also in service around 186 BC. They even attempted to overthrow Ptolemy II. And now we get into the insular Celts, basically the, the Celts of the British Isles. So Strabo differentiated between Britons and Celts, like I mentioned before. I broke that down in the last episode, but really since this has been handled fantastically by the British History Podcast, if you want to know more, just go there. Um, now, Romanization is a key concept in the history of Germany, but not just for Germans, also obviously for the Celts, especially when we talk about Gaul. I will go into more details when discussing the Romanization of Germans in places like Cologne and, Aug and Augsburg, but this happened to, even, to an even greater extent probably in Gaul. So under Caesar, the Romans conquered Celtic Gaul, and from Claudius onward, the, Romans the Roman Empire absorbed parts of Britain. Roman local government of these regions closely mirrored pre-Roman tribal boundaries, and archaeological finds suggest native involvement in local government. Now the native peoples under Roman rule became Romanized and were pretty keen to adopt Roman ways. Celtic art had already incorporated classical influence, and surviving Gallo-Roman pieces interpret classical subjects or keep faith with old traditions despite a Roman overlay. Now, the Roman occupation of Gaul, and to a lesser extent Britain, led to Roman-Celtic syncretism. In the case of continental Celts, this eventually resulted in a language shift to Vulgar Latin, while the insular Celts retained their language.
But this cultural influence, of course, went both ways, and there was a considerable cultural influence exerted by Gaul on Rome, particularly in military matters and horsemanship, as the Gauls often served in the Roman cavalry. The Romans adopted the, Cal the Celtic cavalry sword, the spata or spata, and also Epona, the Celtic horse goddess, and I'll, I'll get back to that later. So again, that's kind of military history, but I also really like to take a more in-depth approach and see if we can get a better handle on their day-to-day -day lives. So to the extent that sources are available, they depict a kind of pre-Christian Iron Age Celtic social structure based formally on class and kingship, although this may only have been a particular late phase of organization in Celtic societies. And I, I kind of touched on this last, last episode. So the sort of patron-client relationships, similar to those to Roman society, are also described by Caesar and others in the Gaul of the first century BC. But obviously this, this is already when there was a lot of Roman influence. But in the main, there's this sort of evidence of tribes being led by kings, although there's, some historians argue that there's evidence of kind of an oligarchical republican forms of government, which... Um, you know, again, probably emerged in areas that had closer contact with Rome. And a lot of descriptions of Celtic societies portray them as being divided into three groups. A warrior aristocracy, an intellectual class, which includes um, professions like druids, poets, jurists, and then basically everyone else. And although little is known of family structure among the Celts, there, there is kind of patterns of settlements um, which, you know, there's a huge variation from really decentralized to pretty urban. And now, obviously, the popular stereotype of non-urbanized societies, you know, we kind of have, like, the, the hill forts and duns. And this stereotype probably comes more from Britain and Ireland. And there are some, you know, 3,000 hill forts known in Britain. And... This is a pretty big contrast when you compare this to the urban settlements of like the core Hallstatt and Laten areas. And in Laten and, and Hallstatt areas, we have something called an opida of Gaul. And this is and this is kind of known from the first millennium BC, um, especially in Gallia Cisalpina or Cisalpine Gaul. For instance, Caesar did not explicitly define what features qualified a settlement uh, as an opidum. Basically, it's an important economic site um, or places, places, places where goods were produced, stored, and then also traded. Sometimes Roman merchants had settled there, and Roman legions could often obtain supplies there. So they were obviously political centers, and you know this is kind of a seat of authority where that affected a larger area and a large number of people. For example, the appointment of Vercingetorix as head of the Gallic Revolt in 52 BC. So Caesar specifically named 28 opida. By 2011, only 21 of these have been positively identified. And sometimes it was either you could kind of tell because of a traceable similarity between the Latin and the modern name, like Orléans Cenabum, or because excavations have been provided, have provided the necessary evidence, like Alesia. And most of the places Caesar called Opida were city-sized, fortified settlements. However, Geneva, for example, was referred to it as, an, as an Opidum, although no fortifications uh, from that period have been discovered. And Caesar also mentioned some other Opida from other tribes, like 12 of the Helvetii or Helveti, for instance. That's twice the number of what's actually known today. Um, so this, you know, the, the implication is that Caesar kind of counted some unfortified settlements as opida, so the, the definition might be kind of vague. And then also, you know, also the historian Livy used the word both for fortified and unfortified settlements. Um, but another aspect of Celtic tribes is slavery. And the way the Celtics practiced it is, it is very, it seems very similar um, to the practice of, of ancient Greece and Rome. So that basically like slaves were acquired from war and, and raids and also as a punishment for like debt um, and other, you know, used as another punishment. So people have said, or it's kind of speculated, I'm not sure how, how well this is known because a lot of this is kind of murky, but um, slavery is likely to have been hereditary and an, o an owner had the right to free their slaves. So there is some documentation of, of owners freeing the slaves. 
In fact, the old Irish word for slave, cacht, and the Welsh term caith are likely derived from the Latin captus, or like captive, and kind of suggesting that the slave trade was an early, ven an early venue of contact between Latin and Celtic societies. Now, slavery did have some pretty deep inroads, especially in British Celts, and we know this. Um, even in the Middle Ages, slavery was especially prevalent in those Celtic countries, like on the British Isles. And um, manumissions, basically the, the, the act of an owner setting their slaves free, was discouraged by law. And it even goes so far that the, f the word for female slave, kumal, was used as a general unit of land in Ireland. So clearly some, some deep-seated roots there, part of their culture, let's say. And another interesting aspect of Celtic society was that they did have or seemed to have a pretty extensive trade route or trade network. We do have like pre-Romic Celtic societies linked with kind of a network of overland trade routes that basically spanned all of Europe and, and even beyond. So archaeologists have discovered large prehistoric trackways which could even allow safe passage through bogs. And these were found in Ireland and, and Germany and other places. And, and because they're pretty robust, um, this, you know, it's, it's assumed that these were actually meant for wheeled transport and is part of a, a pretty extensive roadway. So it's not just Roman roads that are famous, but the Celts themselves, even in pre-Roman times, did have pretty solid roads and um, you know, trade networks. And this is kind of in, in opposition to other long-held beliefs that were saying that all these tribes were pretty secluded and isolated. I mean, and that's, that just clearly doesn't hold up. I mean, as I've pointed out in previous episodes, we do see a cultural and linguistic shift going, you know, even if it's kind of a gradient going from one end of Europe to the other. So clearly some trade and contact um, and that kind of thing was, was happening. And there was, there was a lot of trade, including... Um, you know, tin, lead, iron, silver, gold, and even in pre-Celtic times, um, just look at Stonehenge and where some of the resources come from. So clearly by Celtic times, um, there was a lot of trade going on. And as I've mentioned previously, we did have some metal workers and smiths creating weapons and jewelry specifically for trade, so um, including with the Romans. And that kind of brings us to money. So um, again, not as much is known about this as is as some people would like you to believe, but it is believed that that it was at one point it was just basically a barter system, um, but not necessarily completely. So again, the monetary system it was pretty complex, not understood, and even late Roman coinages is not fully understood today. So. Large, ob large numbers of coins have not been found, so potentially some sort of proto-money was used. So like some kind of bronze item made specifically for kind of, you know, as a replacement for money, like axe heads or rings or bells. So not coins per se, but clearly money in, in some sense of the word. And because there's a lot of, you know, I, I when I discussed the burials in the previous episode, um, there are a lot of burials with large numbers of axe heads, rings, bells, and then later also sickles, that it is assumed that they had some sort of monetary value. And, and you know, these would kind of, these could be used for the day-to-day -day purchases, maybe some large items, and otherwise, you know, some barter was used. So it's kind of a mix, and really, basically, it's just not fully understood. But one thing that is find, found within coinages is a potin, like a bronze alloy with a high tin content, and these were minted in most Celtic areas, and even in southeast Britain, and this, this you know, basically prior to the Roman conquests of, of these places. And then we have higher value coinages, um, like gold, silver, and high quality bronze, and gold coinage was much more common than silver coinage, which I think is interesting, um, even though it's worth much more than silver. And there, there, there is some hundred mines in southern Britain and central France. And, you know, this is probably due to profit. You know, gold is worth so much more, so people just kind of went to greater lengths to, to mine it. And as the Roman civilization grew, um, it also kind of, you know, it expanded its trade with the Celtic world. Then silver and bronze coinage became more common. And, you know, that therefore also coincided with a major increase in gold production in Celtic areas to, to meet this Roman demand. 
And then, obviously, the large number of gold mines in France is thought to be a major reason why Caesar was so interested in invading that area. But, so what did these Gauls actually look like? Um, we have, according to Diodorus Siculus, we have a description, and this is a, this is a quote from him. So Siculus says, The Gauls are tall of body, with rippling muscles and white of skin. The hair is blonde, and not only naturally so, for they also make it their practice by artificial means to increase the distinguishing color which nature has given it. For they are always washing their hair in lime water, and they pull it back from the forehead to the nape of the neck, with the result that their appearance is like that of satyrs and pans, which... The treatment of their hair makes it so heavy and coarse that it differs in no respect from the mane of horses. Some of them shave the beard, but others let it grow a little. The nobles shave their cheeks, but let the mustache grow until it covers the mouth. And, you know, we get artistic depi depictions of this a, a lot, and this comes directly from Siculus's description often. And as far as what they wore, at least uh, in the kind of later Iron Age, they basically wore like long-sleeved shirts, but kind of like a tunic, and also long trousers. The Romans called them like braquet. And the clothes were generally made of wool or linen, some silk being used by the very rich, let's say, like the, like the super elite. And then we have cloaks worn in winter, brooches and armlets were used. The most famous item of jewelry was the torque, if I'm pronouncing that right. It's kind of a neck collar of metals and sometimes gold. And then, for instance, if you look at the Waterloo helmet in the British Museum, um, that kind of set the cliche or the stereotype. Um, but in fact, that is one unique item that has never been found anywhere else. Like nothing like the Waterloo helmet has been found in other places. So first of all, it's probably ceremonial and, you know, rather than military. And it definitely shouldn't kind of, you know, be taken as the standard because it really is a unique item. But the other thing the Celtics are really known for is that, um, at least according to the Romans, is that um, women supposedly par participated in both warfare and kingship. Probably this was more the exception than the rule, but Plutarch reports that Celtic women acted as ambassadors to avoid, to avoid war among different Celtic kind of chiefdoms. And Plutarch kind of reported this about the Po Valley during the 4th century, like northern, northern Italy. And there's some burial sites in Champagne and the Bourgogne region of northeastern France that suggest that women had some sort of role in combat, um, particularly in the earlier La Ten period. So this kind of, you know, fell out of favor later. But again, it's not conclusive ev evidence. So you have individuals buried with fe female jewelry and weapons. But some of, the, some of the skeletons are kind of questionable, like they're not 100% sure if, of the gender of these skeletons. So, and, and then also, even if it is women, the, the weapons may indicate, indicate a rank rather than some, that, that the, the people were actually warriors. Um, so again, it's, it's really hard to jump to conclusions what that actually means. If you look at British Celts, you know, we do have a, a kind of higher amount of historic documentation. Um, you know, there's obviously uh, Tacitus's, um, this, you know, description about Boudicca, which is very well known. And if you want to hear more about that, you know, the British History Podcast did a great job of that. So, you know, we do have women as warriors. And even then, in part, that might have been symbolic. symbolic. It's, it's just not really sure. But both Poseidonius and Strabo described an island of women where men could not venture for fear of death and where the women ripped each other apart. You know, so we, we do have some, some tales like that. And, you know, Tacitus and, and some others mentioned Celtic women inciting, participating, or leading battles. So and, and another kind of an overreaching arc of some of these Roman sources is that, you know, we have this, like, primitivism, like this, this extreme ferocity, cruel, sacrificial practices, and, you know, strength and courage of women. Um, but that's, you know, that kind of ties into the whole like noble savage thing, as in the barbarians are fierce, which is why Rome had a tough time conquering them, and also had nobility and wisdom, which also makes them tough to conquer, yet they're primitive and not as good as the Romans. And this, this kind of thinking is repeated throughout history, and, you know, 
should not be taken literally necessarily. And it's just hard to kind of get to the truth of it because, you know, this is obviously also reflected here. So again, you know, this is just, it's hard to look at these sources and, you know, in some cases, these historians had never actually been to Gaul or been to, to Great Britain or, you know, the British Isles. What we do have a better grasp of because of archaeological evidence is Celtic art. So uh, Celtic art, like art historians, will refer to this as the Latin period across Europe, whereas um, the early medieval, medieval art of Britain and Ireland, which the public, like, like people in general, kind of think of this as Celtic art, art, but it's actually called insular art in art history. So in any case, both styles absorbed considerable influence, influences from non-Celtic sources, um, but there's there are some kind of overarching themes here, like a preference for geometrical decoration over a sort of figurative um, kind of subjects. They're also, you know, it's extremely stylized in a certain way. And now narrative scenes only appear under outside influences, so like Germanic or, or Roman or what, what have you. But we have this, like something you've probably seen before is this sort of energetic circular form um, it's called like a, a triskeles and also like spirals. This is very characteristic and I'm, I'm sure you've seen examples. If you look up Celtic art, if you just like do a Google image search, um, you'll see something like that. But a lot of the sur surviving material is obviously in precious metal, which probably is not very representative of, of the whole picture of what Celtic art is. You know, like all the, you know, wooden stuff and that kind of thing obviously decayed. So what we are left with are these metal objects. Um, so again, this does not paint a whole picture by any means. Um, in fact, if, uh, if you look at like this, this animalistic style or like a Celtic knot, um, like the interlaced patterns that are often regarded as typical Celtic art, these are in fact introduced to insular art, so the British Isles, from animal style two of the Germanic migration period. So hundreds of years after La Ten and the pre-Roman period. So even though this is what people think of when they think of Celtic art, this is why I brought it up. It's more of a Germanic thing originally. And obviously, you know, this was taken up by Celts with enthusiasm and, you know, then represented in metalwork and even the later illuminated manuscripts like in the Middle Ages. And then also this kind of came back to the Roman world and after Christianity spread in the form of like gospel books, like, you know, like the Book of Kells or the Book of Lindisfarne. Um, and then, you know, these, these later artifacts like the Ardach chalice and, and um, you know, brooches and that kind of thing after Christianity spread. So these were kind of the peak achievement of insular art, which lasted up until the 7th to 9th century. And then the Viking, Viking raid started happening, which kind of set back that cultural life significantly in that time. Again, there's, there's a lot of influences from outside of, of the Celts, and I wanted to bring that up because when we're talking about Latin, none of this stuff was happening. So Germanic art, this didn't happen until the migration period some, let's say, three, four centuries later. So just to kind of keep those separated. So what's interesting, what is interesting is that the Celtic art um, on the continent did adopt a lot of kind of Roman and Greek and other foreign styles. Um, maybe even, it's, it's speculated, but maybe even importing craftsmen because it was just in such high regard. So it's kind of distinctively Celtic in some ways, but especially after the Roman conquest, we see some Celtic elements remaining in popular art, um, even in ancient Roman pottery. So Gaul actually was the largest producer of Italian styles, but also producing, also producing works in local taste, including figurines of deities and wares painted with animals and other subjects in really highly formalized styles. So um, Roman Britain, for instance, took more interest in enamel than kind of the rest of the empire, and its development of this Champlevet technique was probably imported to later medieval art and to the whole of Europe, but kind of took off in Britain before the rest of the empire. So that there's some there's some kind of interesting um, influences back and forth between Celts and and even later Romans. 
that's just kind of interesting to look at. So um, what is cliche Celtic art? Probably isn't Celtic art at all, in, in at least not in the Hallstatt and Latin sense of the word. Um, this all kind of came from Germanic peoples and then later Roman styles and then the Celts made it their own and then the Celts even influenced later Roman art. Um, but it's just not as simple as, oh, you know, there's um, this, the, a Celtic knot or Celtic cross. This is clearly, you know, well, Celtic cross is clearly a, a much later influence after Christianity spread. So in the time that I'm looking at, which is, you know, Laten up to the British conquest, none of that stuff really existed. But okay, let's get back to warfare. So um, they didn't just produce art, they also produced weapons. So there's some epic literature out there which depicts this more of a kind of a sport focused on raids and hunting, more than organized like a territorial conquest. And there's some reason to believe that. So, I mean, I, I, I just think these, um, an off, we, we do have some signs of them being, um, you know, some of the tri tribes moving a lot more and the borders kind of going back and forth, if there, even, if there was borders at all. So not borders in the Roman sense of empire, but... Um, you know, so tro tribes had some kind of political control and influence, but um, what might have been more important was a kind of an economic advantage. So again, this is, it's, I mentioned this in the last episode, it is very unclear um, how strict these borders were, even between Celtic tribes and Germanic tribes. So I, I don't want to get too deep into that because I don't think that's very well known to start with. But what we can talk about is the weapons themselves. So Polybius indicates that the principal Celtic weapon was a long-bladed sword, which was kind of used for hacking edgewise whether than, rather than stabbing. And Celtic warriors are described by Polybius and also Plutarch as frequently having to stop fighting so that they can straighten their sword blades. So this has been questioned by some archaeologists. Um, especially because Nordic steel, which is produced even in Celtic Noricum, was famous in the Roman Empire and was used to equip even the Roman military. So um, on the other side of the argument is uh, Radomir Pliner in the, in the book The Celtic Sword, which was published in 93. He argues that, the, um, that there is some ev evidence in, in the kind of metallographic uh, evidence that shows that Polybius was right to a point. So about one-third of the surviving swords from the period might have sort of behaved in that manner, like they would, like it would have bent very easily. Um, but again, you know, there's, take that with a huge grain of salt. So um, clearly that was not always the case. And then another assertion by Polybius was that certain Celts fought naked. And here's a quote, he says, The appearance of these naked warriors was a terrifying spectacle, for they were all men of splendid physique and in the prime of life. So according to Livy, this was also true of Celts of Asia Minor. Um, okay, so maybe some of them fought naked. Um, I don't know. Another interesting aspect of Celts in general was that they had the reputation of being headhunters. There is the thought that the human head was kind of the soul of the Celt. It was like the center of emotion as well as kind of life itself. You know, so the severed head is included in some of these sculptures and representations of uh, Latin carvings. And even there's some Celtic mythology that deal with this. It's kind of full of stories of severed heads and heroes and saints who carry their own severed heads. There's, there's quite a lot of examples. So if you think of like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where the Green Knight picks up his own severed head after Gawain hacks it off, um, just in the same way that like St. Dennis carried his head to the top of Montmartre. Um, and then there's, there's several other examples, like after being beheaded by Viking pirates, he carried his own head to the Holy Well on Omi Island and then dipped his head into the into the well, he placed it back on his neck and was, you know, it kind of healed. Um, Siculus, who I mentioned earlier, he, in his first century history, he described hand hunting in the way that um, the heads of the enemies were slain in battle, the heads were attached to the necks of the horses of the victor, and then they would kind of hang the heads on their houses when they got home. Yeah, and then very important heads, 
from you know people like leaders or tribal leaders or whatever they would embalm them in some way and preserve them carefully in a chest and then display them with pride to strangers and then even they would kind of boast saying that th this was the head of one of the ancestors or the father or whatever um, refused a large sum of money for that head and in some cases even saying that you know their their ancestors or they refused the weight of gold of that head you know so they would kind of boast I mean that's just how much these heads could be worth in in some ways that the head itself is worth more than its weight in gold I don't know how much that holds up but you know there you have it even in kind of the Celtic revival you have this um, Irish mythology that's saying that the heads of, of men killed in battle are described in the beginning of the of the story um, the fight with the fur bogs as pleasing to Macha, one of the aspects of the war goddess Morigu, if I didn't just butcher those. But in fact, you know, let's let's get on to some of their religious beliefs a little. So um, Roman influence obviously led to many changes in the Celtic religion. Um, so for one, we have the weakening of the Druid, the Druid class. So the Druids were eventually obviously died out. This is, you know, kind of a famous aspect of the, of the Roman influence. Before the Romans, we have this, this especially in the very late Latin culture, um, we have this hordes of sickles and this kind of sickle cult in general that comes with these Druids. Um, then another Roman influence is we have these kind of Romano-Celtic deities that begin to appear. So there was a deity that had both a Roman and a Celtic attributes and combined the names of Roman and Celtic deities. We see this over over again in the Roman Empire. So we have the same with Egyptian gods and goddesses and basically anywhere the Romans went, you know, obviously Greek is a great example. The Romans just bought into the Greek mythology wholesale and translated the Greek gods one-to-one, -one, more or less. And then, you know, everywhere else they went, they tried to, um, you know, find similarities in the Roman religion and then also in the places they conquered, trying to, you know, create a smoother transition. The Celts were no exception. This also happened. So, for instance, the Celts adapted the Jupiter pole, which was a sacred pole which was used throughout Celtic regions of the empire, especially in the north. And where I grew up, they basically still do this. If, if you've ever heard of a maypole, it's just uh, where I, I was raised in Bavaria, and it's just one more excuse to get outside and kind of quaff beers by the leader. And this will obviously not come as a surprise to my German listeners that the Jupiter pole is alive and well in, um, you know, parts of the ex-Northern Roman Empire to this day, still kicking. Another major change in religious practices was the use of stone, monu stone monuments to represent gods and goddesses. This was kind of pretty new to Celts as a whole. The Celts had only created wooden idols before this, and including monuments carved into trees, which were known as sacred poles, previous to the Roman conquest, which sounds a little bit kind of like something from Game of Thrones a little. Um, and then other European Iron Age tribal societies um, had this in common with the Celts that they practice a basically, you know, polytheistic religion. And many Celtic gods are known from texts and inscriptions from the Roman period even. And so then we have the Druids kind of performing these rites and sacrifices that were carried out. And the, the Celts did not see their gods as having human shapes until late in the Iron Age. So Celtic shrines were situated in remote areas um, like like hilltops, groves, even lakes, but but you know, kind of away from the urban settlements. And I don't want to oversimplify here because there was a lot of variation, but there are some patterns. So I don't know. Like like one example is that they they worship both gods and goddesses. Uh, in general, um, gods were kind of deities of a particular skill like the many-skilled Luch and, and Dagma, while goddesses were associated with natural features, um, especially rivers. And this was not, again, universal. So we have like gods like, I'm going to butcher these names, but like Brigid and the Morrigan were associated with both natural features like holy wells and also the river uh, Unius, and also skills such as blacksmithing and healing. So 
you know, it's it's hard to kind of uh, pigeonhole some of these gods and goddesses. I mean, they're, you know, or even um, find patterns that that hold true a hundred percent. So there's there's a lot of exceptions and a lot of variability. One uh, kind of common theme is the idea of kind of triplicity in Celtic cosmology. So the number of deities were seen as threefold. This trait is exhibited in like the three mothers, um, which again were worshipped by many tribes, but with a lot of variations. And then it's kind of hard to get a grasp of the whole cosmology as a whole because Celts had hundreds of deities, some of which were basically unknown outside of a single family or tribe. So a huge amount of variation. But some deities were popular enough to kind of cross cultural and even linguistical barriers and boundaries. Um, you know, like the Irish god Luke was associated with storms and lightning and culture and is seen in similar forms as like Lugos in Gaul or Liu in Wales, if I didn't just kill that. But briefly, I just mentioned the name Epona, the Celtic horse god. That also had kind of Irish and Welsh counterparts, and the Romans even seem to have adopted that that god specifically. Now the Romans described these druidic, druidic ceremonies as, be, as having being held in like sacred groves. So the Latin Celts built temples of varying size and shape. And I mentioned the sacred trees and, and that kind of thing. So there's, and the, the Druids are supposed to have not just been a priest, but also kind of serve, served as judges, sacrificers, also teachers, lore keepers. So just, you know, had a very important um, role in, in the tribes as a whole and in, in both in a political sense and a religious sense. sense. Um, Druids were also thought to have kept being kind of the keepers of the calendar. Um, there may have been more than one class of druids, so different types of druids doing different types of things. Um, really hard to say. I would say what's known about druids for certain is nothing. So take it all with a huge grain of salt. In fact, anytime anybody tells you anything about druids for certain, they're almost definitely talking about a neo-pagan uh, aspect of druidism and not nothing that's millennia old. Um, but that kind of brings us to the calendar, and it is interesting that the Druids had their own calendar. W one calendar was found in 1897, and it's engraved on a bronze tablet. It's preserved in about in 73 fragments, and it was a, it's a pretty big thing. So it's about one and a half meters wide and almost a meter high. And so based on the style of lettering and, and the accompanying objects, it probably dates to the end of the second century. It's written in Latin, but it's in the Gaelic language. So this tablet, which was kind of restored, has 16 vertical columns. So it's basically describing 62 months distributed over five years. So it's speculated that this was recorded by Druids that wanted to preserve the tradition of timekeeping when the Julian calendar was already imposed throughout the Roman Empire. So they didn't want to kind of forget the old ways. So, um, you know, we have Latin characters, but in a Gaelic language. And it's, it's a type of calendar that is kind of, you know, like this peg calendar, is found throughout the Greek and Roman worlds. So maybe, you know, some Druid just didn't want um, their Celtic calendars to be lost forever. So this was like one last stab of, you know, keeping the past alive, even though the Julian calendar had by this time already um, kind of taken root. So, and just a quick note here before we leave Celts behind us forever. So obviously the Romans converted to Christianity. Um, and then even unconquered parts, like let's say Ireland and Scotland, moved to Celtic moved from Celtic polytheism to Christianity sometime in the 5th century. And obviously Ireland, the interesting thing was Ireland was converted under from missionaries from Britain, like, you know, St. Patrick. And then later missionaries from Ireland were a major source of missionary work in Scotland, and then also Saxon, parts of Britain, and Central Europe. So it kind of went into Celtic areas and then back into mainland Europe. And... Now, Celtic Christianity is kind of interesting because 
Um, now we're really talking about Britain and Ireland for the most part. But they really branched off from the rest of like Roman Catholic uh, or, you know, kind of the rest of Western Christianity, let's say. So in Ireland and Britain, um, we have this kind of medieval renaissance of Celtic art between, it lasted quite a while actually, from like 390 to 1200 AD. And basically, the reason I want to mention this is because in the public mind, when you think of Celtic art, you're really probably thinking of this Christian Celtic period. But in, in the last episode when I mentioned that, you know, the term Celtic in English didn't really come about until like the 17th, 18th century, this is kind of part of that. So the rising sort of nationalism or, or the, you know, the Celtic revival from the 19th century um, brought this Celtic term back into England or the British Isles. And oftentimes they're talking about Celtic Christians, not the much earlier uh, kind of Celtic polytheist or, or pagan religions. So just, just a footnote to clarify that when people say Celtic art, you're talking generally, you're thinking of a much later period than what this episode was about. All right, well, you know, once the Romans came, long story short, uh, the Latin culture came to an end. Um, the Druids became extinct at some point, And that basically stopped the Celtic development in continental Europe. Uh, for most part, you know, I, I talked last episode that some of the... There is a cultural revival even today. Um, but while the Latin culture may have ended with the Romans, the history of Germans is just getting started. I will kind of... When I get back to the chronological order... Um, I will start with the Romans and Germans and talk about Germanic tribes, a lot of it from Roman sources, but I'm going to take a small break. First of all, I need to kind of do my research for the next few shows, and I may add an interview or two. I have a couple interviews lined up um, that I might do after this miniseries and before I get back to the chronological order. So if you don't see... If you don't see this feed update for a few weeks or even a month, don't worry. In the meantime, check out bohemican.com. Those are some great episodes about the Czech Republic, and there's a, obviously a lot of over overlap with German history. And, you know, there's always the History of Alchemy podcast. Those shows to, to kind of hold you over. And in other news, I'm moving back to the States, and therefore I'll be pretty busy for a while. But I promise I will be back. So for now, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 